Um, hey, we're in a new series called Summer Playlist, and, and we are basically going through the Psalms. I got to say this right, real life from the Songs of Psalms. And uh, that's the book that we're in as we go into June and July this summer. And so we're going to be hitting some of your favorite Psalms, but we also may hit some that maybe you haven't heard of from as much to see what God has to share with us um, as we just pour into God's Word this summer. And each week we have a different song that we're going to kind of relate to the message. And so this week we opened up with Happy, and it's, the song is maybe like seven years old now. One of the interesting things about this song was it was like the number one song all summer long, like a few years ago, in like 37 countries. And that was one of the unique things about that song. And I think it's so interesting because the reality is like we all like this idea of just being happy, of just having that joy come into your life. And when you hear that song, it makes you want to clap. It makes you want to dance. And, uh, and it's a positive, uplifting song. And so it doesn't surprise me that people were so drawn to that. And so as we pour onto these psalms, I can't wait to see what God has to be shared with us. If I ask you the question of, do you want to be happy? Everybody's going to respond like, yes, I think at least 99.9% .9 of people at least are going to say, uh, yes, every once in a while I have met a person who just seems like they don't want to be happy. And I think we're going to dig into that a little bit today. So as we go into this message, go into this series, would you pray with me? Um, Father, I pray that we can just rest in the fact that you are all-powerful, that you are all-knowing, that you know everything and you can do anything. God, we bring you our lives today. We, uh, we worship you today um, as we gather on this first day of the week, the day that brought the early church together to remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. And it's because of that resurrection that we have life promised to us spiritually as well as our own resurrection that is coming. Although I pray that you might lift our horizon, our, our gaze just a little bit. God, let's just not look at everything around us, but let's look up to the heavens and pick us up. Be able to see what your plan is for us, the design and model that you have for us, that we are living life to the full. God, I pray that as the psalm declares, so I pray, Lord, that we would understand and we would be fueled with the enthusiasm of joy that is put there by the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing I love about the Bible is the Bible actually has a lot to say about happiness. The Bible has so much to say. Before I dig, though, into Psalm 1, I want to kind of just set the, the groundwork for this series that we're going into as we dig into the Psalms. Uh, one interesting thing that I, I came across when I was reading through different commentaries is that as you look at different stages in the church, that you saw what they call revivals. You saw like major movements. There was three things that you saw. Um, the one is you saw an individual uh, pursuit of God's word in their lives, not just on Sunday and not read in Latin, but read in a common language of the people. That that is really one of the primary factors. The second thing was you saw a movement of the Holy Spirit. You saw the Holy Spirit uh, doing miraculous things and speaking and God moving in powerful ways. The third thing was you saw a fresh uh, set of songs that were written probably through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit during that time about what God was doing in their midst. And, and so we see that uh, 
in the Reformation, we see that um, when the Methodist movement was really coming across America, uh, we see that back in the 1300s when there was a large movement. Um, if you don't know, um, believe it or not, Rock Harbor actually does have a hymnal. Um, we have one copy of it, um, but we do have a hymnal. It's called the Covenant Hymnal and Worship Book. So if you want to see it, I'll have it up here afterwards. And it's got a lot of the classic uh, hymns that are part of many, many hymnals. Uh, it also has some that are still written in Swedish. Um, that's part of our heritage, believe it or not, at Rock Harbor is we are planted through a denomination that was sent out of Sweden um, a couple hundred years ago, believing that God was doing a work and it was all founded on the word of God. It had some new songs written and God brought a freshness through the Holy Spirit. So if you want to see the Rock Harbor hymnal, uh, the covenant hymnal, um, you can check it out. And, uh, and I, I mentioned that to Betsy, the piano player, and she was looking through it and asking which song she wants us to play. So if you find a hymn that you want us to sing on Sunday morning at Rock Harbor, uh, we, did you guys know we have a pipe organ? We actually haven't done it on a Sunday morning um, for Rock Harbor. And so find a hymn from our hymnal that you want us to sing Betsy will be more than happy to play it, and we can hear some pipe organ in our worship. And that's part of it, is we want to see a freshness of what God is doing, but also we want to be a part of what God has done, because that's where we stand today. In fact, our sermon series that we're going to do in the fall is going to be on the stained glass of this room, as we honor the, the faith and heritage of this building that God has entrusted us um, to become a part of. Um, one last note on that. I'm going to send out an email later this week. So if you don't get our emails, please fill out a connection card. Given some more detail that I could do well right now. But this Thursday, um, the Board of National Covenant Properties, the bank that we're working with through our denomination, is going to meet. They only meet once every two months. And we are formally applying for a loan that we need to purchase this facility in the upcoming months. And so this Thursday, as a church, Please be praying together um, as we pray for God to continue to see um, wisdom in this. This past, what was it, Wednesday, we had the vice president of the bank do a site visit with us. And, uh, and he seemed very positive in, in, in where God's leading in our church and making this a possibility. So please be praying for that. So as we continue to understand that, that, that God moves, and, uh, and one interesting thing is I love how God moves in quiet times. But as we go into the book of Psalms, that was written to really be songs to be sung, as well as written in poetry, that this idea that our quiet times are supposed to always be quiet is something I want to push against just a little bit. That we have songs that we can sing, that we can make noise, and we can, we can be a part of what God is doing through music. So as you see the devotional that's on the back of the bulletin notes or it's on the app, my challenge to our church this summer is to see if God can write a new song on our heart. And so maybe during your devotion time for the next couple months, begin to write a song. And maybe it's a song that you're going to sing just for God. Mine probably will be. Um, no one else would probably want to hear me at least singing it. But how cool would that be if all of a sudden God brings a new song um, through Rock Harbor this summer? The book of Psalms, just to give you some groundwork, is the longest book of the Bible. A funny thing about these statistics I'm about to share with you is, by pure coincidence, I got done doing my research. I sat down next to Carson, my nine-year-old on the couch. He's like, hey, Dad, what's the longest book in the Bible? I'm like, Psalm 119. And he starts asking me all these questions, and I had just done this research. He's like, Dad, you are so smart. 
And I didn't tell him that I literally just typed this out like three minutes ago. And so I sounded really, really smart. The longest chapter of the Bible is Psalm 119. It's 176 verses. We're not doing that one in this sermon series. Uh, the shortest one that's only two verses is, that's the shortest verse, the shortest chapter, I'm sorry, in Psalms is Psalm 117. It's only two verses. Um, we're not preaching on that one either. Those are both a little too short, too long. Um, there's seven different authors that we know about in Psalms. Uh, David's the one that we know most often. He's attributed to 73 different Psalms. Um, the sons of Korah, um, which were actually biblically referenced as working in the temple. They were writing music for the church. They wrote 12 of them. Asaph, the choir directors, he wrote another 12. Solomon is attributed as writing one, and Moses is writing another. Um, a guy by the name of, it's not Heman, I think it's Haman, um, wrote another one. And there's a guy with the name Ethan who wrote one, in case you were wondering. Uh, there's 48 psalms that are called um, orphanic psalms because they're orphan psalms. We don't know exactly who they wrote them, and many guess that David probably wrote many more. Um, as you look at the book of Psalms, they cover a thousand years of history of God's chosen people. It goes back to Moses in Psalm 90, and then we've got some written in post-captivity, so we know we've got over a thousand years of church life that is represented in the Psalms. Uh, something that I think is worth noting as we go into this series on the emphasis that God has on Psalms is that Jesus quoted the Psalms 11 times. He quoted Psalms more than any other biblical text. And so if you read the book of Psalms, some will say, well, you know, it's nice poetry, but believe it or not, there is deep theology in the book of Psalms. 17 times in the book of Psalms, we get references to the Messiah and Jesus fulfills all of them. And that's probably why he quoted them so much is because these were texts that he very much was living out and he knew that. Um, What's so cool is that if you understand that the Psalms are many times written about Jesus, is that they were singing about Jesus for a couple of thousand years before Jesus walked on the earth. Just think about that. They were preparing the way. They were worshiping God. They were moving in a powerful way thousands of years before Jesus came. And now we can look back at these same Psalms and we can see the fulfillment of Christ in them and continue to worship him from a different perspective. Um, so as we go into these Psalms, we can see that, that God is alive in this. If you've studied the Psalms, you'll see where it says like book one, which I think is like Psalm 1 through 41 in the chapters. Um, if you don't know the five books of Psalms, so as you work through that, it will say book one, this section is book two. What those five different books are, are the first five books of the Old Testament or the Torah, the Bible that the Hebrew people had. And so they're, they're sectioned off in these five books according to those themes. One of the things that I want you to do over these next two months is I want to teach you how to study the Psalms. So even someday if you're studying a Psalm that we don't preach on in this series, you're going to learn some tools to help you study all the Psalms on a deeper level. And so one is, if you understand what books it's from, if it's in book one, it represents Genesis, which will help you understand man's relationship with God. 
If it's in book two, it's going to be on the Exodus, which is understanding our deliverance by God. If you're in book three, it's in Leviticus, and you're going to understand the sanctuary of God. You're going to understand the holiness of God. If it's in book four, it's going to, a lot of the, the lamenting books are there. The, the books where we're lamenting, we're crying out to God, is understanding our rebellion against God. And if it's in the fifth book, it's in Deuteronomy, which is God's renewal through his law and through his word in our lives. And so anytime you're studying a psalm, take note to which book this is in. Is it book one through five? And then you can begin to understand the theme of it as you study it. Um, Hebrew poetry is very different than, uh, you know, the poetry that we're used to. When we think of poetry, we think of rhyme and meter or cadence. You know, it's going to rhyme. It's going to have a rhythm to them. Um, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Rhyming cadence. Now, two things. As one, we are reading an English translation of the Hebrew, so there would be some loss of the poetry in that, um, but they didn't really write according to rhyme or meter. What you see typically in Hebrew writings and poetry, even outside of scripture, is they write what's called parallelism. They're going to take two countering thoughts and intellectually compare the two by giving different illustrations. We're going to see that very clearly in Psalm 1 today. So it's called Hebrew parallelism, and that's the real kind of poetry that you see. So when you're going to look at any psalm, say what book is it in to understand the theme, and then begin to identify the two counter thoughts. And you'll really be able to see what is God trying to tell me through this passage. Those are your first two tricks to reading through uh, any psalm. All right, let's get into Psalm 1, verse 1. Sage, thank you so much for giving us the ability to hear the whole thing in context hearing it from the NIV. Um, I'm going to break it down more in the New King James to give us a different translation on it. Um, Plus, I think if you're like me, a lot of us, the Psalms, we memorize them in the New King James like growing up or something. And so it might, you know, bring back some good memories. Verse one, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Now, verse 1 here, it says, blessed is the man. That word blessed, if we really want to translate it from the Hebrew, it doesn't translate well because it's the word happy or happiness in plural. And I don't think happiness is is a real word. I'm going to guess that it's not. But really it's saying happinesses, that this abundance, this overflowing joy, this beginning of understanding that blessed is the man. If you want to be happy. I love what they said in the young literal translation. He says, oh, the happiness of that one. How beautiful is that? Like, if you want to understand happiness, oh, the happiness of that one. You've met that person. I was talking with Melissa. Her daughter was uh, with the youth group Friday night, and uh, if you ever meet her daughter and she walks in the room, everybody's happier. She just has that smile that just like radiates through a room. And you've met those people. They walk into the room and all of a sudden like everybody's just happier because this person walked in the room. And they're basically saying, if you want to have that kind of happiness, blessed is the man, oh, as happy is the one. 
and then it's going to be able to give us some instructions. And as most scripture does, it starts off with things that we don't want to do. The first thing, if you're taking notes, is this. The happy person is described as by what he declines. Happy is the person who is marked by what he does not do, the people he does not hang out with, uh, and the place he does not go. The positive comes after the negative. There's a lot of power sometimes in, in negative thinking. It has a lot of control over us. I've asked Alex to share, if you want to come up, um, he has uh, been a professional athlete uh, playing baseball, and you played college at Florida. And I will admit that year after year, Florida is better than Ohio State in baseball. And every once in a while, you're better than us in the other sports. It just so happened in one it, year, you beat us in both championships, which is crazy. In the but those are the, year, only one of the, the ones that count. They are the ones that count. Okay. I'll give you that. How many have you won in the past 20 years? <laughs> I don't. I don't. Okay. I right. just remember those ones. Yeah. Okay. All right. So Alex, um, this idea of like, I think the reason why I wanted to I invited you to come up and I gave you three minutes to think is um, when people think of Christianity, um, let me share one more illustration. A guy walked into to a, a newspaper and he said, I want you before I hire you to show that you can take a text and make it shorter. So he gave him the 10 commandments and the guy comes back and says, here's my summary. He wrote one word, don't. <laughs> And people think that that's what God is doing, that God is saying, like, don't have any fun. Don't do this. Don't do that. And that it's scornful. Mm -hmm. um, but as an athlete and also as a father, husband, Christian, um, you understand that saying no to stuff can bring life. Yeah. And so it's interesting because I've got a 14-year-old son. And so I was probably the... when. He asked me to do this. The first thing that came to mind was the steroid stuff. So I was in the, the steroid era of baseball. So some people argue it was an amazing time. You had Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire and all those guys hitting all the home runs. And it was, it was amazing TV. But it was definitely a, an interesting time in the sport because it was really an accepted process. And so one of the big times you could use steroids was after an injury. So, you know, when you're... I compare you like a Ferrari, right? Like once you get a little ding in the Ferrari, if you can afford a Ferrari, you put it, you get rid of that one and you get a new one, right? And so just there was always somebody behind you that could, that could just kind of leapfrog where you're at. So after surgeries, most guys would take cyclosteroids and it would speed up their recovery. It would speed up the healing process for them. And it was an interesting piece for a lot of us because I personally, so multiple surgeries never took them. Um, you know, my, my biggest reason at the time was always, you know, I want to have kids someday. What, what if something happens? You know, what if I have a child that, you know, would that be my fault? And so there was definitely moments and times when guys would take, a st take steroids and they would just leapfrog where you were at. They would heal faster. They would be stronger when they came back. And there were a big chunk of guys that would never do them. And then there were a big chunk of guys that the lure of the money and the world and the fame and everything that goes with that is really difficult to say no to. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of my example. And I look back and I can tell my sons and my daughters that I never did do them. Um, you know, it was the right thing to do. I kind of maybe, maybe wish I, maybe it's at points, so to be honest, like maybe yeah. you tried it just to see what it did. But um, it did definitely, you know, the, the perceived happiness is 
is fleeting and it's gone. Yeah. And then the foundation of having kids and the ethical piece of that and the being able to look at them in the eye and say I did the right thing is pretty cool. Yeah, and in those college yeah. years, were there times you had to say no to staying out late when other people could? Yeah, there's no no shortage of the world. And you can't eat whatever you want. And it's not because um, it's because it's worth it. Correct. And um, and you got a chance to see that. So yep. all right, man. Awesome. Thank you. Appreciate you. Doesn't matter. So if we were to, thank you, Alex, and if we were to summarize this, I would say happy is the person who understands that no is the first step to yes. No is the first step to being able to um, uh, play that game and to have success and understand that happiness. Uh, it says in Scripture that um, blessed is he who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. If you're taking notes, the second blank is um, the happy person is the one that um, says no to bad advice, says no to bad advice. Two quick ways to disaster. Two quick ways if you want to ruin your baseball swing to life in general is if you take everybody's advice or if you take no one's advice. Those are the two quick ways to have disaster in pretty much any area of life. You know, there's a Danish proverb that says, he who builds according to every man's advice will have a crooked house. That idea that we really, the Bible is reminding us over and over and over again, who is it that you're going to for advice? If the answer is, well, I don't go to anybody. I don't trust anybody. I just trust myself. That's not gaining on the wisdom of others. But if you're the person who's just, you know, putting it out there on Reddit and you're letting everybody just answer the question of, of how you should deal with your marriage, that's probably not going to give you the best advice either. So who is it that we're allowing to come into our lives and speak into it? Are they biblically grounded? Are they asking the question of, well, what does the Bible say? Because if you don't hear that phrase from the people that you're asking advice for, then I would recommend finding different people. And what's so great is, if you look at the people sitting around you, we've got people around here that can help build each other up, and that's why we push in a group so much. The next verse says, nor stands in the path of sinners. Uh, the happy person is the one that says no to bad associations, to bad associations. Um, stand means linger or loiter, or loiter. If you walk in the footsteps of bad advice, you will soon stand among those who give it. Paul writes to 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, do not be misled, bad company corrupts good character. Again, this is kind of that next segment. This is working out a little bit more. This isn't maybe the people that are giving you advice on your marriage or your work, but these are the people that are influencing the decisions that we make in life. Uh, one thing I do want to note as I preach this is Jesus hung out with friends of sinners and tax collectors and those that were considered um, bad according to his society. He was around those people, but here's the difference. Here's the challenge that Jesus gave us. You see, in the Hebrew culture, pre-Jesus, they kept themselves completely separated. You weren't allowed to walk across the threshold of the house of a sinner or a Gentile or a non-Hebrew. You didn't wear their clothes. You didn't eat their food. And the half of the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit and Jesus wrestling with early Christians to understanding how Jesus changed that game. That we want to be among those that don't know Jesus. In fact, we're called to be among 
those who don't know Jesus. But when Jesus went into their homes, when Jesus was in their presence, he didn't allow them to influence him. He went into those places so that he could influence them. Ask yourself those questions. Am I influencing the people around me that don't know Jesus? Am I bringing them closer to Jesus or am I going further from Jesus and closer to them? That's that way to understand. So it's, it's a difficult balance, but it's one that as a church that we want to stand in, that we want to be those who continue to make a difference in this world. Christians who move the world are those who don't let the world move them. And that's who we want to be. The next verse says, um, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, um, the one who wants to be happy, the blessed one, is one that says no to, to bad actions or bad thoughts or bad deeds. See, the seed of the scornful or the mocker, I think, has been so increased, especially with social media. And now what we consider news programs, I feel like, just sits in the seat of the scornful and the mocker. And everything can be so negative. And understanding that God doesn't want us to be in that place where just everything in life we look at and we want to tear it down. But no, be the people that are part of this world to build things up. So there's one piece of poetry I want you to see here. Um, one thing when you read the Psalms is pay attention to the verbs. The verbs are typically the words that have the highest level of meaning in Hebrew parallelism, especially in the original text. So what verbs do you see here? As you look into the verses, you see walking, standing, and sitting. And you see the progression is further away from God. So it starts off with walking, goes to standing, eventually they're sitting in the seat of the mocker. You think about Peter. Peter was walking with Jesus. He was following Jesus. He was doing the work with Jesus. Then Jesus was arrested. And it says that he was standing by the fire and began to deny him. And then it says in Scripture that eventually he sat down in the corner and a young child comes up to him and he again denies Jesus Christ. So be careful of your movement. Be careful of where you are. But if you're walking with Jesus, then you're prepared to go into this world and make a difference. Verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night. So the happy person is described by what he declines. But second, if you're taking notes, the happy person is described by what he delights. By what he delights. The psalmist moved from the don'ts to the do's. A lot of people have enough God to make them decent, but not enough to make them dynamic. And what he's calling us to do here is to actually delight in what God is doing. That we actually are that person who walks in and, and people say, man, that person is something different. They radiate. It says it, it's not his duty or his drudgery, but it's his delight. If we ever feel like coming to church, I say this all the time, uh, maybe too often because someone's going to actually listen to me, but if coming to Rock Harbor Church is a place of drudgery or duty, then I feel like you're maybe got the wrong place. But if you feel like you delight in this, that this is a place where like, I can't wait to get to church. Or if you can't say the phrase like, man, I can't imagine going to Monday without being with my church on Sunday. Because that's the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us. I want to know the word of God. 
I want to see what God is doing. I can't wait to see what God is going to challenge me in my life. Let me ask you this question. Do you remember what books of the Bible that this author was writing about when he says, I delight in the law of the, of the Lord? It was the same five books I just said. When I say delight in the word of God, do you think of Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? Are those the five books that you say, man, when I am struggling and I'm having a bad day, I go to Leviticus 13 and I just feel uplifted knowing all the relationships I shouldn't have, you know, like, or whatever that chapter happens to be. I don't even know, you know, but just think about that. That's what he had because in the midst of all the chaos of life, he could be grounded in what it meant to have a relationship with God. He understood his need for God, but we get to have the Psalms. We get to have the Proverbs. We get to have, um, I love Micah. I love Nehemiah. I haven't even gotten into the gospel of Jesus Christ and the New Testament books. I mean, we get to have not just the first five, but we get to have the full word of the Lord. And we get to bring that into our lives. And so we should delight in God's word. It says a really interesting word here to translate in this text. And it's the word that we have for meditation. The word meditation here is different than some other parts of Scripture where it says meditation. Um, it's only used two other times in the Hebrew text. Genesis 24, verse 63, um, they didn't even have a Bible yet. Just think about that. It says that Isaac went outside and meditated with the Lord. That he went outside, looked to the stars, and meditated with God. He didn't even have a Bible. I mean, isn't that kind of crazy to think about? Like he's going off the fact that his dad told him about a relationship he had with God and a promise that God gave him and says, there's a God that's out there. I don't have anything that I can read. I don't have any building to go to. I don't have a temple to go to, but I'm going to go out and meditate with the God that I know was promised through my father. In Joshua 1.8 it says, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you should meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. It says meditate. So this word meditate, they've had a hard time trying to translate it. And then what's interesting is, as they were reading just any text that we find from ancient times, the word meditate was found in references to animals in the field. And it actually was used as a word to describe a cow eating his food. And they're like, well, we've got something wrong here. So actually, and this is like in the past 30 years, a theologian looked at that and said, well, what if that's exactly what God's trying to tell us? When a cow eats its food, it's a very slow process. And they'll actually eat their food and then they'll bring it back up and they'll eat it again. They'll bring it back up and they'll eat it again. It goes through a few different stomachs. It's a long process. And the reference that it was actually making was to, towards the noises that a cow would make when it's eating its food. Um, my wife and family give me a hard time frequently um, because I make noises when I eat my food, apparently. She's tried to record them because I've never heard them, but like, I really like food. Like, I do. Um, I will like stop throughout a meal and describe how much I enjoy the food. Um, I will eat it slowly. I will, if it's really good, I'll cut smaller bites just to make it longer. Whatever it is, like 
I really enjoyed food, but apparently I make noises. Mm. I don't know. I've never heard them. But apparently Angie says they're very odd. And uh, I make noises when I think food's really, really good. And, and the, so the, the theologian says, what if that's exactly what God's trying to tell us here? Is that sometimes we treat the word of God, you know, like we're trying to eat Krispy Kremes and, and we just want to eat them as fast as we can. You know, but what if God's word is something that he wants us to slowly take in, chew on it a little bit. And maybe instead of this summer reading every single psalm, what if you're going to read Psalm 1 every single day of this week in a different psalm and you say, yeah, I'm going to do eight psalms this whole summer. And I'm just going to meditate on this word. I had a pastor growing up that would challenge us to do that. Back in the day, we had to like use a Xerox machine to like Xerox our Bible and fold it, the paper in our pocket. Now we can make it our home screen on our phone, whatever we want, and read it multiple times a day. Meditate on it. Chew it up. Bring it in. Allow God to take that scripture deep inside of us. This meditation, um, what's so interesting is it's a link between theory and action. What is God actually, not just what am I reading, but what is God calling me to do here? And dig into it a little bit. Verse 3, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. How great was it that we had seeds in the brown box this morning? You know, this idea to have this verse come to life in the very beginning through God moving through Ben's heart on Wednesday. Like, I just absolutely love that. So we, if you're taking notes here, write this down. Um, we see the person who is living out happinesses by what he depicts. And a tree depicts progress. Uh, a carrot plant depicts progress. How fun is it when you put the little seed in and you see the first red, you know, or sorry, green um, leaf just come through the ground? Like how beautiful is that? Like the, the joy of that, that you can see that progress is happening. You know, I know we've had, we had a birthday here yesterday. Um, one of the young ladies in our church turned five, and I was talking with the parents and just saying, like, what, what a joy in five. You actually see that they're actually going to someday be an actual human being. You know, you can actually reason with them. I feel like, like, threes and fours, all you like could do is, like, threaten their lives to get them to respond to anything. Once you get to five, it's like, hey, I know that you want this, and I can give it to you, or I can take it away. It's a different level of threatening, I guess. Um, but you can reason with them, like, like, what's the greatest one? Guys, you know this would make mommy happy, you know? And Preston, who's back there right now, is like, okay, I'll do it for mom. I don't think that works for us, guys. I don't think it does. I've never heard mom say, like, can you do this for dad? No. You know? But it works for mom. Whatever. Um, Christianity is more than being born. We believe that a relationship with Jesus Christ requires a new birth. When Nicodemus asked Jesus that question, um, you know, he asked him, what does it mean to be born again? He tells you, you must be born again. But we believe that it's more than just that. We believe that uh, Christianity is more than just pediatrics, that um, we grow up, that, that we grow and we go through life and sometimes we need an emergency room visit. Sometimes we need to get something fixed. Sometimes, uh, eventually, we need geriatrics. We need to have, like, the full length of life in our Christianity. That we see that's something that God is growing inside of us. 
A tree, if you're taking notes, depicts performance. I love the fact that like for a tree to really, really, really grow to be a tree and to bear fruit, it's got to eventually get out of the pot. It's got to eventually be planted into the ground. It's got to be willing to spread its branches. And as parents, that's hard sometimes to be able to let it out sometimes and grow like that. Uh, John chapter 15 has one of the great words of all the New Testament where he says, Jesus says, remain in me, abide in me, and I will abide or remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. That we've got to be connected to God. Um, what's the botanical gardens at Vero Beach? McKee. I was going to say McNee, but McKee or McKay, something. McKee. You guys know it's McKee. Jamie's like, Kevin, it's McKee. Don't question me. It's McKee. Um, there was a, I was talking to them about their ponds there when we did a visit with Coastal, and uh, they had this one tree that's really, really big, and it, she told me this story. The ponds there, because of like the water level, they, they're not real ponds. They all have to have concrete, and they have to have, um, you know, some kind of barrier so that the water doesn't spread into the greater, like, water system. And, but they had this one, I said, oh, I said, is that ever a problem with, like, roots growing? She goes, it's funny you ask. There was this one tree that we, was one of our new trees. They don't plant a lot of new trees. It was a new tree that we planted. And it was growing, like, seven times faster than any of the other trees. And so we went to go check the bed. We assumed that there was a crack in the bed because that water was pouring down. It was probably getting a lot more water. And they said, so we, we began to like search the bed. And before we drained it, we just searched the perimeter. And all of a sudden we found roots that were growing up and over the concrete and going into the water. And they said, no wonder this tree was growing more than all the rest. It was like mainlining water directly into the tree. And they actually have it connected so that it gets filled up through a water source every single day. So this tree is like just sucking it in every single day. And I think that's like this story that God wants us to see is he wants us to be connected to him. He wants us to abide in him. He wants you to like say, Kevin, how do I grow? Well, stay close to Jesus. How do I stay close to Jesus? You get in his word. And his word's going to influence your prayer time. And God's going to all of a sudden put a new song in your heart. And you're going to write a worship song this summer, right? God's going to do these things in you. A tree uh, um, depicts productivity. It says that brings forth its fruit in its season. You see this idea that fruit is a picture. It's the result of spiritual activity. That eventually we don't exist just to be a tree, but we exist to be a plant that is part of refreshments for others. Um, there's two big waters, bodies of water in Israel. The Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. Do you know the difference between the two? One's dead and one's alive. Why is one dead and why is one alive? If you want to understand happiness, I literally shared this with three people between my house and here this morning because I knew all the firefighters working the uh, triathlon this morning. And so I stopped and I shared this with them because I knew the guys, by pure coincidence, that were, I met today on the road I knew their life this week and they needed to hear some happiness. And I said, you know what I love is you've had a tough week, but you're out here at 5 a.m. and you're serving and you got a smile on your face. You see the Sea of Galilee, it has rivers that come in and it has rivers that go out. The reason from a biological perspective, the Dead Sea is dead, except for this one like organism that can survive inside of it that you can't see. 
is that all it has is streams coming in and no streams going out. And because of that, it just continues to fill up with salt, continues to fill up with sediments, and it just stays dirty. I mean, can we look at the river and we understand that? You know, people ask me if I eat fish out of the inlet, and I say it depends on how close to the source it is, right? If it's at the inlet, I'll eat them. You know, if it's somewhere in the middle, maybe not. If it's got that fresh water, we can understand that. So are we staying close to that source? A tree, it says, whose leaf also shall not wither. A tree depicts perseverance. It doesn't give up. It keeps on going. What does Jurassic Park always say? Life will find a way. Isn't it amazing, like, the weird stuff that trees will do? That trees will just find a way to get their roots in there. It doesn't give up. It will continue to do what it can to live and to thrive. It says, and whatever he does shall prosper. A tree depicts prosperity. This idea of prosper here could be translated as full-grown maturity. To understand that balance. The last section here, verse 4 through 6, shows how the person who pursues happiness by how he differs. The psalm is structured to help us understand the difference. So here's something else to look for, the two counterpoints. Can you see the two words in the text? If you still have the text in front of you, Psalm 1 through 6, what are the two words that describes this entire poem? The first one is blessed or happiness. And the last word, sage said, destruction. The New King James Version says perish. And you know what? People always like to say there's a lot of different paths. But the Bible is pretty clear. There's two. There's the path of the blessed and there's the path of perish. There's the path of happinesses and the path of destruction. And it's asking you the question of which path do you want to end on and which path are you on? Are you on the path of doing these things? This is giving you the do's and do nots of how to have happiness in our life. In Luke chapter 3, Jesus tells this amazing story. Um, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is speaking in this text. He says, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I. I am not fit to untie the thong on his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather up the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. I had a picture, I don't know if it made it through, of just what this looks like of taking just the husk and throwing it up and letting the wind take away what is useless so that the seeds would come down. You see this parallelism that we see, blessed versus perish. Are we connected to God or are we the chaff that is going to be blown away? Are we connected to God? Are we pulling from the living body of water? The final verse says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Which path are you on? God invites you onto his path, not because the other path is the better path. No, because he offers the path of life. We can say no to things in order to say yes to what is better. Say yes to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, I'm just so thankful, Lord, as we close the service today. 
That I'm so thankful for the many who have heard you speak. God, I pray that on the inside, that God, that you would speak into us. We're thankful, Lord, for the model that you have provided, this model of satisfaction, this model of refreshment, this model of how to live with happinesses. The model of what you call a truly happy, blessed person. People always want to say the words like, oh, I'm blessed, I'm blessed. Today we've got the definition of what does it mean to be blessed. And God, I pray that this summer, Lord, that we can chew on your word, that we can feel it so strong inside of us that we just want to just make a sound towards the Lord. That God, that your word would just be alive in us. And Lord, not that we would be pursuing happiness, but that as we pursue holiness, as we pursue Jesus, that we know a life of pursuing Jesus will lead us on a path towards happiness. God, I pray that you would train us to see that no is a holy word, a good word, an important word. And in saying no to certain things and, and maybe even certain ones and certain activities so that we can say yes to the right things that brings growth and depth and refreshment, not just for ourselves, but so that we can go into this world and we can lead people to Jesus. Lord, I would just pray for anyone who hasn't really experienced that yet. For them, maybe church is still seen as a religion or as an institution, an organization, but it's not a relationship. I pray that that would change today. I pray that you would draw just the men and women who are hearing this of all ages to Jesus Christ, the fountain of living waters, the source of all refreshment, and their life would be planted in that stream that we would get the mainline drink of water directly from the source as the Holy Spirit just moves into us this morning. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.